What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Media Network presents Ghost Tracks Race Talk. Well, hello world and welcome again to another episode of Ghost Tracks Race Talk. Got uh, the co-host here, well actually the host, Bill Blair Jr. Good evening, Bill. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Tim. Hope you are. Yeah, I am. Has my volume increased enough for you? It sounds okay right now. Okay, well, I hope it'll stay that way. I've got everything set uh, way higher than I usually do, so I hope that's going to work out all right for everybody. So tell me what you got on tap for tonight. Well, we're going to have a uh, pro stock racer, Jimmy Patton, on tonight. And I think people enjoy that to get about his uh, uh, pro stock racing history and North Carolina Drag Race Hall of Fame. I want to mention that. Plus, I want to mention also some of the listeners tonight. Ed Heist, Dargan Watts, Lyle Larson from California, Bruce Dillon, Russ Mann, Scott and Brian Kaiser. They are the grandsons of uh, Ike Kaiser, the famous Ike Kaiser who built and built race engines, race cars back in the late 40s and 50s. In fact, he built the uh, uh, 4950 Oldsmobile torpedo back that Buck Baker drove in 1950 down at Daytona. I believe it's 1950. And later on, uh, Lee Petty drove it, and uh, uh, Darrell Derringer, and Paul Goldsmith. But that car is the oldest uh, example of an early-day race car, and Marshall Griffith is listening. I, he's the owner of that car, and I think his his dad and, and uncles all owned that car and had it built by Ike Kaiser, by the way. That is a beautiful car, too. That was oh, for a long time in that Darlington Museum. Oh, yeah, beautiful car, and it's still around. It, it gets a lot of attention. It's a real tribute to our early-day stock car racing history. And uh, both Ike Kaiser um, cars of the uh, early uh, 50s and late 40s, a lot of people knew Ike Kaiser. He was famous for his engine-building expertise, and his cars uh, won a lot of races. And I believe he's also with, uh, in business with... Uh, or ownership with one of the cars that Baker drove that uh, was co-owned by uh, Roby Combs. And I think uh, Phil Combs has listened tonight, and, and Ike and uh, his grandsons, uh, Scott and uh, uh, Brian Kaiser, are listening. And Gary Lou Allen, Jim Lou Allen's son, he, uh, Gary Lou Allen's dead. Uh, let's see here. 50-51 champion of Bumble Gray Stadium, I believe it was, but uh, Jimmy Lou Allen won a ton of stock car races back at this time. But they're all listening tonight. We really appreciate that. And, we uh, really do. Thank every one of you for listening, tuning in. Yes, sir. Really appreciate it. But the good thing about some of our listeners, they want to preserve early stock car racing history. 
and that's so neat because that to me is when the race early days that's when the, those guys really had a passion for what they were doing they did do it for the money there wasn't no money in it back then but they loved to race one another and that was when racing was racing and uh, I've heard it said that a lot of these guys today you know it's a different deal they don't race like the guys in the early days did. I mean, you know, if you didn't pay these guys today any money, they wouldn't probably want to race. But the early guys run for nothing, so to speak. You stop and think about it. And uh, uh, they're the guys that we owe a lot to for starting and laid the uh, foundation to stock car racing. And uh, they were real drivers back then, too. I mean, you know, look at the elements. No air-conditioned suits. Uh, wasn't much of a roll cage, if any just one belt to hold them in and um, no fuel sales I mean those cars are very damaged, da uh, dangerous and um, they did a lot for the sport of stock car racing and they also are the ones that helped Bill France it wasn't all Bill France that started stock car racing or NASCAR without those guys he couldn't have done it so the Ike Kaisers and the, uh, Griffins, Bobby Griffin and all his brothers down at Griffin Motors in South Carolina, Florence, South Carolina they 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 made a big tribute to stock car racing back in those days, a big contribution. So they're listening, but the good thing about it, uh, Marshall Griffin is carrying that Oldsmobile around to display it for people to see how it used to be. He'll talk to anybody got pictures. He takes all the programs, such as Mount Area that's coming up in uh, September the 12th. It'll be up in Mount Area, North Carolina, on display on the Main Street up there. That event is still on as we know it right now. And uh, he takes Daytona Beach each February for people to see and put it in the parade. And another thing that's going to take place, the Kaiser boys are going to build a tribute, 39 Ford, in honor of Ike Kaiser and uh, Roby Cones. And it'll be just like the one that Ike Kaiser built back in those days. And they'll be carried around to all these shows for people to see. And, and the motive is, is to preserve stock car racing history as we know it. And if we don't preserve it, we won't know it because these guys are passing away. And it's up to the grandsons, the sons, to preserve stock car racing history. And uh, that gets back in something we want to talk about later on the show about the uh, the museum, NASCAR Stock Car Racing Museum, Hall of Fame Museum over in Charlotte, as well as the uh, North Carolina Auto Racing Museum over in Morrisville. I love to go over there. Oh, I do too. It's so neat, Don Miller, Bob Hisson, all the guys over there. They're so nice to us. And they got a lot of these early cars in there. They got one 39 Ford over there that raced back in the 40s. It's rusty, but you know it's a race car. And people stop and look at that thing. They get the camera out and start making pictures. And say, oh, my gosh, look at this. This is an old race car. And you can tell it. I mean, you know, there wasn't much done until back then. And you can see right away that this baby was racing. <laughs> it's crude, but it's the real deal. Is that the one I saw at the NASCAR Hall of Fame? Yeah, that's that's the uh, that was a project they had exhibit over there, uh, the Forty Eight Proving Grounds, mm -hmm. and I think that was the best, most successful exhibit they've ever had at the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Was the Forty Eight Proving Grounds exhibit, and that car was the most photographed car in that whole museum, bar none, as I understand it. So people love the history; they really love the history. Stop and think about it. If you took the old history out of the NASCAR Hall of Fame, what would they have left? <laughs> if they took the history out, Bill, there wouldn't be much left because I think, you know, even those inducted into the Hall of Fame would have nothing to support their right to be there. 
if it that, were were not for the history that all these guys that we talk about on Thursday night, and a lot of them we have on the air with us on Thursday night, had such a large part in developing that sport. Well, I'm thankful, Tim, they did put Banjo Matthews in. But, I mean, you know, the other guys, yeah, they need to be in the Hall of Fame. But right now, I ask that question, but it's none of my business. They're going to do what they want to do. But I like going to the NASCAR Hall of Fame, but I always going up to the fourth floor where the real history is at. Amen. They ride one of the simulator cars, but the rest of it I don't pay no attention to it because you can see that every weekend. Yeah, you can. See, that's old. That's not history. Speaking of every weekend now, what do you think – or when do you think we're going to get back to some racing? And what do you think this continuous push for more and more stay-home deal will do to Mount Airy? You think we'll be clear by September? Well, I sure hope so. We just don't know. And, uh, you know, we look at the news, and depending on what network you listen to, there's a couple of networks It's all gloom and doom. Looks like they're trying to blow, prolong the deal. And then, of course, we got a president that tries to keep everybody pumped up in good spirits and all, and I think he's doing a wonderful job. And I'm enthusiastic about Mount Airy. I think and hope the way the trend is right now that we'll be okay for Mount Airy. And I'm looking positive. I'm looking forward. I plan to have the Oldsmobile up there and plan for Mr. Marshall Griffin to be up there with the Olds 88 that Buck Baker originally drove. And by the way, my daddy drove that car one time and turned it over. It oh, shame on your daddy. <laughs> uh, it's still being in this little bit in the roof. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, I think Mount Airy would be good, and if not, we'll do what we got to do. Yeah, just and I'm sure you know this already, but Motorfest in Charlotte has been canceled, and they're going right. to try to reschedule yeah. it for the October yeah. race. Well, Ed will be helping us up at Mount Airy, folks, so uh, he's, he's going to be with us. Yep. We got a lot, of, a lot to look forward to on September the 12th because I think last year, last year was just the beginning of what what is really going to make a rock and roll history of stock car racing. Well, I'm going to tell you something. We had an awful good time at the Mount Airy. I mean, you got history coming in there, and you got the old race cars there, and you got a lot of the old drivers, and it was just a hoot, you know. I enjoyed it. And another thing so exciting is you got newcomers coming in trying to preserve our history. You know, uh, Brian and uh, Scott Kaiser had to be just great, and Phil Combs. We're in Shelby, North Carolina, Boiling Springs, wherever it's at over there. Uh, I guess it's between, but anyway, it's in that vicinity. But they're doing a great job, Phil and the Kaiser boys and Marshall Griffin and uh, all the others. Uh, uh, Wayne uh, Haynes has got the Fireball Roberts car and all the other cars is just out here being brought back. Randy Myers is bringing Bill Myers' car back. Uh, he's in process of fixing it. And then, of course, Chocolate's got two of his daddy's replica cars. And you know, it's good to see that stuff. That's when racing was racing. And it's so neat to see these cars. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, the dedication of the of the young people that go back and are, are doing these things, that are rebuilding cars and doing these things, just goes to show you how important it is to them now a lot of them are trying to keep their daddy or granddaddy's legacy alive and i appreciate that a great deal but what they may not realize is they're keeping the legacy of all of stock car racing history alive by doing what they're doing yeah because tim a lot of what these guys know you can't read it in books oh i know i know i I listen to some of these 
mechanics and engineers you've had on, and I sit here twiddling my thumbs thinking, I'm only understanding half of this, but it sure sounds like fun. <laughs> it was. You know, race was fun back then. Yeah, I know. I was talking to Dewey Livengood today, and he perhaps will be on our show in a few weeks. He knows a lot about the history starting in about 1960, and we talk about the old thing. We just sat there and had a heck of a talk, and hopefully he'll be on our show a little bit later on. Well, I hope so. I remember him. By what means, I don't know, but I certainly remember the he name. Worked, he worked for Bill Ellis, Jim Pascal, Ken Rush, Dewey Chief. No, okay. Builder for Labonte. Labonte won the championship. I guess we need to get Jimmy on tonight, don't we? Yeah, we do. Oh. You still there? I'm still here. Okay, let me get him dialed up. Like, like I was telling you before we came on the air, Skype did one of their fantastic little updates like, like four minutes before I was scheduled to call you and it just uh, I, I didn't even know when I dialed you if it was going to go through or not but apparently everything's straightened out so we're doing it alright it's going to be ringing right now should be ringing right now It is. Hello. Hello, is this Jimmy Joe Patton? Yes. Jimmy yeah, Joe. This is Jimmy. Jimmy, this is Tim Hello. Leeming with ICAST Media, and I'm going to turn you over to Bill Blair, who's going to host you tonight. Thank you for joining us. Okay. All right. I'm on here. Go ahead, Bill. Hey, Jimmy. This is Bill. Good to hear from you today. I talked to you a couple of days ago and talked about a little bit of your racing history, and you told me about how you got started. But how did yeah. for you as a track race? Yeah, can you hear me okay, uh, or do I need to put I this on? You, uh, you hear me pretty well. Yeah, yeah how I, I, you just want to know how I got racing, huh? <laughs> well, okay. you're a ball player first. I didn't know you was a ball player. Oh yeah, I was a ball player. Uh, I never lost, lost games, did I, I never lost a game pitching in high school, and I was a pretty good ball player. Of course, my daddy played in the Par- Pittsburgh Pirates and the Boston Red Sox organization. Boston Red Sox. He, yeah, he played. For yeah, he got Sox. his. He got high as Triple A ball back in 1947, I think it was 48 at Triple A in New Orleans, Louisiana. So, uh, anyway. I, I got my driver's license. I started out on the road racing cars. I was racing everybody I could. And uh, so my mama, she said, I'm going to get you off that. I'm going to get you off the road. You're going to go out there and get somebody killed or kill yourself or hurt somebody. And, and so that's what we done. We went and got us a Camaro from a junkyard that had been hit in the front end. And we made a pro stock car out of that thing. It was a 67 Camaro. Yep, I started out in pro stock. I started out in pro stock as that was the only thing around at the time in 19, I think it was 1970, I had somebody I was on Facebook. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground. Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. 
Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Live, what a go. And I had some people tell me that it was 1969 we started in Greensboro, but I'm, I still think it was 70. But we built up Camaro. About 1970s when I first heard of you. Yeah, you started to build my engines in 1970. And uh, uh, somewhere in 1970. What happened then? I uh, built your motor. <laughs> we started winning a lot of races. <laughs> oh, we run a lot. We, how, how many did you win? Well, in not, I think it was 1973 when I got that new car, the, the Chevy 2. Uh, I acted as a Pontiac Ventura, but we made it a, a, a Pontiac a Nova because it was the same car. And uh, we won like 10 in a row with Edmont and, and Pro Stop. That and, was uh, a Blair Special, wasn't it? Yeah, we had some good drivers. Uh, we had, uh, I'm going to name a few of them here. I was trying to put that list together a while ago. We had Bunny Dolls, which him and I were partners at one time. We had a garage together, had service stations that over there he used to come to. And uh, we had Don, we had Bill Bullard, and I found out today Bill Bullard has passed. He's no longer with us. Uh, sorry to hear that. All right, we had Alfred Williams, and he's still living. We had uh, John Brumley, and John, I don't know where he was down here in South Carolina somewhere and went to Florida, but he had a he had a Camaro too. Uh, we had Larry Dorsett. We had Freddie Turner that had a Vega. Uh, we had uh, we had Linwood Craft from Roanoke, Virginia. Roy Hill from High Point. Max Hurley from West Jefferson. And I think those three I just named are in the North Carolina Drag Racing Hall of Fame. Well, you are, uh, let, let me touch on something here just a minute, Jimmy. Now, first okay. of all, pro stock racing. Let me tell this, Jimmy. Um, for you, those people out there that's round trackers don't know what we're talking about tonight, but there was a time back in about 1969, 70, a lot of the guys got together with the new Camaros and put big block Chevrolet motors in them and, and formed a class called Pro Stock. That was your fastest class running at that time besides the dragsters. But they were getting together in different parts of the country. It just so happened Greensboro was a hotbed at that time at Piedmont Drag Strip. And that's when Donnie Doss and Jimmy Patton, all these guys he just mentioned, started getting together and racing. Eventually, they migrated up to uh, North Wilkesburg, Bill Ellis' track, and had 16 and 32-car fields. They come from all over the country. And uh, I met Jimmy... Back in 1977, started building motors for him, and that's how I knew him. And, Jimmy, I believe that you won more races at Piedmont Drag Strip and Pro Stock and all the rest of them. There's nobody else ever won as many races as you did at Piedmont Drag Strip. Is that correct? I'm pretty sure that's correct. I may be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. And well, I've got a little... In the second exhibition race, Greensboro, Jimmy Patton, beat out Eddie Sharpman, a factory-backed Ford driver. Now, what I want to emphasize here is Eddie Sharpman and Don Nicholson ran for Ford. They had the comments, and they had a lot of money, and they had all the factory support behind them, and yet they came to Piedmont Drag Strip, and both of them got outrun that day. One by Ronnie Sox beat uh, Dono, Don uh, Nicholson, Dono Don, and you beat Eddie Sharpman, both factory-supported cars. So when they came down here to North Carolina at Piedmont, they was in for it, wasn't they, Jimmy? Yeah, they they went back home, uh, you know, not winning. And, uh, and that's when Ronnie had his Barracuda, too. Or, yep. uh, I'm pretty sure he run the Barracuda down here that day at uh, 
at Piedmont that night, and uh, Eddie Sharpman had the Maverick, and Don Nicholson had the Maverick then. You know, so uh, yeah, that was a, that was a surprise. I mean, you know, they just they didn't think the old local boy like me, you know, the regular old pro stock guy that run pro stock every Sunday, had any chance of beating fast Eddie, but we beat him. Well, I got to ask and, you uh, something else. Did uh, did Roy Hill ever outrun you? Oh yeah, Roy outrun me quite a few times. Uh, I think it's I might have outrun. Yeah, Roy is good. I'll take that away. Roy is real good, and uh, that's why he's in he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, Roy's a real good drag racer. Been here a long time, and he's still and sometimes. Doing. Oh yes, he is. Uh, matter of fact, he's going back to throw stop this year if we ever get to go back racing. That'd be uh, a good one. Yeah. Well, did got, you uh, mention that you might go back to racing again? I'm hoping that this deal comes through. This guy will supposedly got a brand new Camaro that's going to run NHRA Pro Stock. And uh, I might get to test that car in at Atlanta. And if that happens, uh, I'm going to try to do it as old as I am. I figure Roy can do it. I can do it. And Roy would have to be to, yeah. Roy's a little bit older than me, but yeah. Roy would have to be the one to give me a license, pro stock license. You have to have a license to drive now. Yeah, I don't know if you get grandfathered in or not on that, but <laughs> but come in and that'd be nice. Yeah, yeah, need that wheelchair. Put a four twenty seven on it, but I don't know. They run at five hundred some cubic inches now. Bill, uh, have you, do, you know what, mountain, one that, yeah, well, they got that mountain motor pro stock too, which that's, that's, that's a whole lot of cubic inches. And you'll be running like, the NHRA pro stock. Yeah, NHRA, the one where mostly all Camaros run. Well, now, don't they have a, don't they have a division bringing back some of those cars, a special division running the, like the cars of the early 70s, late 60s? They have got a nostalgia pro stock uh, circuit that they run every now and then, and uh, they got that. Uh, they got it on Facebook called uh, Nostalgia Pro Stock. A guy up in Pennsylvania's over it, and he's the one that bought bought Roy Hill's Plymouth Duster. You know the one that Petty built. Yeah, okay. And uh, and he was gonna let me drive that car to start with, but I ain't heard from him in two years. So, uh, but they put the Lenko out of that car and put. I don't want to put a torque plant in or something. I, I don't even know if that car's ever went down the track yet. So I don't is know. Is that what Mike Kennedy's going to do? Is he going to run with him? I know he's got some kind of some kind of nostalgia pro stock car. Now who's that? Mike Kennedy. Boy, used to work. Oh, uh, yeah. I would probably assume so. So because the last time I seen Mike when was over at your shop until he went. I think he went rocking him on a race too, didn't he? He did. He sure did. He went him and D Hart, Gary D Hart, D Hart worked for me a little bit too. They started their own business, uh, Candy D Hart, and built race cars. Oh, okay. And uh, they went to Dodge. <laughs> I know oh, Gary was always. Yeah, they did build Dodges, didn't they? D Hart yeah. was sort of a Mopar guy. Uh, that's right. He was a Mopar guy. And uh, but I thought Gary D Hart went to work for Rick Hendrick. He did. I'm talking about D. Hart Candy formed a team after they worked for me. Oh, okay. This is, and then they, okay. When they got started, yeah. All right. Then he went to Rockingham and won. 
They were both pretty well, good. I'll, I'll tell them that. Well, you reminded me of something last night I didn't know, and that was a. Uh, I want to know how in the heck I got run up in a door, opening your door with your garage. Well, folks, <laughs> did uh, it really pick up? Door. Yeah, I, here's what I want to tell them. We had the okay. doors. It had a front one and a back one. If you open them both, you can drive through the shop. Well, you had your car over there, and we had the motor out of it. We were going through it. And so you come over to help. You're going to put the motor back in. So you open the back door, and the next thing I know, you throw the door up, <laughs> and the cable and rope come along, and you went with the door, except you went feet first, and there you were hanging up. We I had to bring it. the door back down to bring you back to earth. I've never seen nothing to beat that. Get me out of here. Get me out of here. Help, help. <laughs> oh, I wish man. I'd have a camera. That'd be a good picture to have now. Oh, Lord, and, uh, yeah. And but, yeah, we, thing you did, let me, while we're on the funny stuff, let me ask you this. <laughs> I read in the paper where Jimmy, Joe, Pat, and you broke in your own service station because you locked the keys inside or something happened. The law caught you and told you in jail for breaking in your own place. <laughs> Tell me what that was about. Well, that was the day I got upset. Uh, it was Christmas, and uh was building, getting the car ready, you know, uh, ready to go in early January, normally speaking and all. Uh, and I had a engine in the back that you had built. I had to put the tunnel around with the two 4,500 Dominator carburetors, which back in them days, them things were high back then. And uh, I think I had a transmission back there. Well, they knocked the glass out of my service station, went back there and stole the intake. And the hands off the engine and the uh, transmission. I don't reckon they could pick up the block. That's why they didn't sell in or still is. Well, well, I never did see it broke into until I got there the next day to open up. So after I got the door repaired, I got out there one night. I got mad. And I just knocked the glass out of that door after I repaired it just to see if they'd do anything. Well, they did. They come put me in jail. And my daddy had to come get me out. But I think I had a beer or two, too, that night. Okay. I don't drink no more now. I was going to get the rest of the story. I that. <laughs> That's the rest of the story. But the paper didn't explain it that way. <laughs> I know. <laughs> broke into your own place and they put you in jail. Yeah, they sure that. did. And now while we're on that subject about the things that you've done, uh, I was Paymark one day and your car left the line up there. The one thing come off the line, wheels up, and that baby was gone. Next thing I know, there's something like a door went up in the air about 200 foot and <laughs> landed over in the parking lot. What was that all about? Well, we put fiberglass doors on that Camaro. That was a 69 Camaro, one that we later built, a lighter car, and it had fiberglass doors on them. Yeah. And I don't reckon we know that them doors had to be bolted in real good, too, but it, it come loose and it come off. Well, it sure did. But you never cracked the throttle. It went on one to race, didn't you? Yeah. Well, it come off right at the finish line. Yeah. And uh, almost. Yeah. And uh, that was your, that was your Camaro, uh, but you later that on was built six, the uh, little Yeah, that was, uh, yeah, we built the 67 Camaro. Then we went to a 69 had two cars running at one time. And then, uh, then we got that 70 and a half Camaro that had the split bumpers on it. The one like right. Bill Jenkins had. Yeah. And uh, we went down there 
to uh, Sanford. That car got stolen Saturday after we run a test drive in it. That car was a fast car. I had to, that's the one that had the aluminum disc brakes, aluminum rotors, all kinds of stuff trick on that car. And never did find it. And then and then we bought that car from the Pontiac place. That was a Pontiac, not a Chevy 2. And a brand new one, I'll shut room floor, took a home, made a race car out of it, sent it up to Roanoke. They're the one that put the tube chassis and all that in it. And then that's when that thing hardly didn't get beat at Piedmont anyway. Yeah. And uh, we went to Shuffle, uh, we went down to Charlotte for a big pro stock race at Shuffletown, won that. I didn't actually drive that day. Stuart McDade drove that car that day. Oh, yeah. Stuart McDade, yeah. Okay. And then uh, then we uh, raced every, about every Saturday night up at Morville. The same people that raced in Piedmont most of the time went to Morville. Right. Even, even Max Hurley, Linwood Craft, the whole game. And uh, and we went went to Tennessee one time uh, at 411 Dragway in Tennessee. We won that first championship for the state of Tennessee, too. And uh, and, uh we outrun really with craft for that money. How many trophies you got, or did you keep them? I ain't got none of them now. Uh, you know, I, that, all that stuff was in my mother's home up in Greensboro, North Carolina, which yep. my brother-in-law owns that home now because it was my sister's. My sister passed away. And I don't know, all that stuff was out in my garage, but it mysteriously disappeared. Yeah. And I, so I still got some pictures of my old cars here at the house. So, but I, I know that you're on that committee up there. You know what I'm talking about? What we're talking about, maybe that four or five of us, four of us or something. Yeah. yeah Cause we, we actually started all that circuit, uh, there in Greensboro that went to, uh, uh, North Wilkesboro. And you know who won at North Whitburn, don't you? No. Don Carlton. Don Carlton, okay. Sure Don did. Carlton. Don well, Carlton, and Stuart Goodade. Yeah, I went and all that. Up our several times, and uh, all of us was there, and that was the days of putting Ross down. I loved to watch them do the burnouts, putting the Ross down, and make your first run off the line, and it wouldn't pick the front wheels up just a little bit, but the second time you left the line doing the burnout, the wheels were about two or three foot in the air. You remember that? Excuse me, oh, gentlemen. Yeah. I, I've got to take 20 seconds for a network break. Hold on. Okay. Now that we okay. have your attention, thank you for listening to ICAST Media, the Freedom Network. Visit us at ICAST.network. Now, back to the podcast. Okay, guys, back at you. Thank you very much. Right. Maybe we'll talk about your cars here this minute. Y'all were sponsoring those cars out of your own pocket, wasn't you? Yeah, we were sponsored out of our own pocket. And would- what if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, Cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Now, we had, we had some help from uh, Jerry, uh, what's his name? On hot, Jerry Smith. Or Jerry Reed. Who owned Hot Rod Barn? That was Jerry Reed or Jerry, Jerry Smith. Jerry Pierce. Jerry Pierce. Yeah, Jerry Pierce. Yeah. He helped me out in that Nova. When I, cut down, when I went to Georgia and all, he helped me out a lot. I, I, I think the picture that I sent you 
uh, when you see that, that all the Piedmont drag strip all the way to the finish line was full of people, you can tell in that picture, that was a hot yeah. rod barn car. Yeah. He, he had me and Roy Hill. And uh, Master uh, Wirehouse at one time helped a little bit on parts, not a lot. And uh, Southern, uh, what's the, uh, all the boys up there? Yeah, Southern Automotive. They helped a little bit too, not a whole lot. But they was more, they, they sponsored Alfred more than anybody. Southern Automotive. Uh, I was Billy, Billy, Crash, Billy Gus. Billy Craig Billy also helped Alfred too, didn't he? Yeah. Billy Craig. Yeah, that's after I, yeah, that's after I got out of Pro Stop. They helped him in Sydney forward at forward and all. But, but so. these guys that you're talking about that went over at Piedmont and then they went around the North Carolina way up in Virginia and different places, a group as I call them, um, the North Carolina Drag Race Hall of Fame, I've been talking about this for a few years, that we need to recognize these guys. And last year we did meet, and uh, we talked about coming up with a way of honoring all these early pro stock guys that raced at Piedmont Drag Strip. And uh, we'll have some sort of program by next year, certainly, to honor all you guys into the North Carolina Drag Race Hall of Fame. I don't know how they're going to do it yet, but we're working on it. So just Well, we hope so, because we were at Yep. Uh, you know, we went to Shuffle, uh, Shuffle Town. We went to uh, Farmington. Uh, we went to East Bend. And uh, that one up in Virginia was uh, Independence, Virginia. That's where we raced at. And then, uh, then I took that, you know, right after you built the first motor in that Camaro, that real one that probably went to 427. Uh, I went up there. Yeah, 430, yeah. By the way, folks, it had a 332B uh, uh, GK cam in it. Yeah, general committee. <laughs> yep, sure but did. we went up there and run a 990, and that's what Bill Jenkins was running at the time. Mm-hmm. And a quarter of a mile. I don't, think I, your cars, but, uh, I don't think you was tricked out with your chassis like Bill Jenkins was. Really no, not then. That was, the, that, was the first, that was the very first pro car, uh, the Camaro, the 67. Uh, the tricked out car now was the Nova. That's the one that uh, people up in Roanoke built. The same people that built Linwood Crafts. Yeah, okay. And, uh, and uh, I know Linwood, uh, all them boys went on to run a, a lot of races and all that. I, I got out of it right there at the end of 74. And uh, I, in a way, I wish I had to have. I probably shouldn't. I just, I just, I don't know why I got out of it. I just wasn't making no money. And if you don't have a sponsor, you know how it is. Do you remember what they paid if you won a pro stock race at Piedmont, Wilkesboro, anywhere back in those days? Oh, if you won first place, you won $200. And then on the big races, you won 500 Yeah. And we won the 500 at Shuffletown, over at Parmington, and one time up at East Bend. So, but we got... uh, Back in them days, every Sunday at Piedmont or, or even at uh, up there at Mooresville, uh, you got $25 just to be there. You know, they call that tow money buy gas. Yeah. And, of course, you could fill your car up with gas and truck back in them days. But, and uh, that's what we're doing. And 200 first place, 200, uh, I think it was 100 second, and, and then the rest of the people got the $25. Or, and then it went to fifty dollars at one time, but that's what we got paid back in the day. Well, back in the day, also, there's a lot more families involved. I mean, you had the Doss brothers, Bill and Donnie, 
and then uh, your mother and did, and uh, I believe I'd be correct in saying that your mother always wrote me a check or paid me cash, one of the two. Yes, she did. That was my mom. She, she handled uh, all the finances, as I remembered. She actually worked at Piedmont Drag Strip at one time. Did she? I know. She actually worked at Piedmont Drag Strip uh, making corn dogs and french fries and all. Was Piedmont at that time, was it a two-lane drag strip or one lane? Do you remember? I, well, I wouldn't say it was one lane. They had a, well, the return strip. They had a paved return strip. And then, you know, one lane on each side. You go down. Well, was it four know, lane now? Did you remember it being a two-lane drag strip when it opened? Yeah, it was two. It was, what you mean by two-lane? Well, there was a medium in the middle of it. no. Oh, that was, that was down on the finish line. I mean, it, after you got through the, uh, uh, no, it you turned got down through. The strip, it, it, it turned in just to be two lanes because that boy that bought Hubert Platt's old Thunderbolt, he got off in the middle of that thing and rolled that thing a country mile down through there. Yeah, that's all after the finish line, eh? Where, where, where they had the dirt in the middle? Yeah. That where you talk? Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we run pro stock in '70, it was it was paved in the middle. Yeah, okay. I wasn't sure about that, but that's well. And you remember the people would get right up on the drag strip, and you almost couldn't get down the strip because they'd be standing on the strip. Oh yeah, remember that a lot. You had to do a burnout or two to get them back off the track. Yeah, it was and a lot then of people went to get right back. They yeah, sure would. And all. Well, what are you doing now, Jimmy? What What are you? What are you occupied doing now? Well, I went from drag racing cars to singing. Oh, my goodness. I do, I do music shows for a living. I do karaoke shows. I've been doing about six a week. Have uh, you really? I let people, yeah, I let people sing and all, but during the, what we got going on right now, there's no shows at all to do right now because you, restaurants are closed. You can't go in yeah. and you can't do what we do right now. Well, it would be a good time you know. to go back to drag racing, wouldn't it? Yep, it would be. Because you can get six foot away from each other doing that. But, uh, right. Well, you know, right. Jimmy, um, I I was there when you raced in early days, and I always enjoyed being around you and watched you work on your car. And you guys had an awful lot of fun back in those days. You, you didn't call it work. You worked having fun, I guess. But uh, all it was always a laughing at one another, always friendly. I don't remember any scuffles or fights, but... Uh, a lot of hard work, a lot of hard racing. And uh, when you look back on it today, I know you enjoyed that, but do you ever miss it? And if you do, what do you miss about it? Well, I miss the people being at it, and, uh, the noise, and I miss I miss turning that thing up about 8,000 RPM and coming out of the hole. And, uh, that's what we turned in. I don't know what they turned down. They probably turned 10,000 now, don't they? I don't know, probably. But what kind of transmissions you have back then? That was before Lincoln's, really, wasn't it? Yeah, we run a, we run a Chrysler four speed. We run Chrysler transmissions and the Chrysler rear ends. Mm-hmm. And then uh, I got out of it just as we was putting Lincoln's in. That's probably one reason that I got out of it because I could not afford no. I think a Linko then was three thousand dollars. Back in nineteen seventy four, and yeah. nowadays they're twenty thousand. So, do you remember what what the engines used to cost? Uh, 
if I'm not mistaken, I thought we could come by L88 or something like that. Uh, of course, we run the 454s later on. Uh, I think it was about $800 for a short block racing block. And then we bought yeah. the aluminum heads. Of course, y'all worked on the heads and everything. And uh, it didn't cost me a million today. What's it cost today to build a brand new one? $100,000? Probably. Uh, probably more than that. Yeah. Probably more than that, Jimmy. Yeah. Well, well, Jimmy, we certainly enjoyed having on you on tonight, and uh, we wanted to get a little bit of information from you about uh, your racing days, and and uh, it was enjoyable, and we appreciate you sharing that information with us. Anything else you'd like to say? We're going to clear out of here in about two or three minutes. I just hope that if you can get us in that North Carolina Drag Race the Hall of Fame, we'd sure appreciate it, and I'm sure that uh, Donnie Dawson's family would would you know, enjoy it. Alfred would enjoy it. And, you know, some of the other, Bill Bullard's family, because we actually the pioneers of it. Well, you are. And uh, I can remember a lot of the names, but what we'll certainly do is get in touch with you, and you'll have the full uh, list of the people who were part of that, because we want to do something to honor these guys. And, and y'all played a big part in a contribution to what we have today is drag racing. And a lot of those think, Jimmy, that those days were better days than they are now because you know I don't I still don't like the dial in stuff one car leaves uh, the other car leaves three or four tenths a second after you break out then I just don't like it I like heads up that's what I should be first guy gets there and wins and that's what y'all are currently doing I like it when they had the four speeds in the cars too and if you know how to swap gears that's how you can do it well yeah, that's right. If you're down at the finish line, you see the cars rear up and leave the line, and then you would hear them because that's sound right. was slow to get there if you was a quarter of a mile away. At that time, Piedmont was a quarter of a mile, I do believe, or thereabouts. And yep. before them cars would come by at the finish line down there, and they'd be within a foot or two of one another just to get in it. And that right. was real racing, real racing. And uh, yep. I enjoyed it. And those days, I don't know. The closest thing to it, I guess, is the pro categories today. If you watch NRA race on NHRA race on uh, Sunday or Saturday at the nationals, and uh, that's what it's all about. Leave at the same time and get there about the same time. But yeah, uh, that's Jimmy, correct. thank you, thank you, so thank much, you Bill. Uh, and Tim's anything yeah. you want to say, buddy? No, but I sure have enjoyed it. I got a great thing, and then when I think let me see who it was, Jimmy Gilstrap put the note up before you even mentioned it that says, and I'm quoting now, from a winning North Carolina drag racing champ to the South Carolina king of karaoke. Yeah, so That's a true story there, too. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, but it has, been, it has been great having you on, no doubt about it, Jimmy. I enjoyed it much. Right, one, one more thing I want to ask you, Jimmy, before you go. When you won a race, what was your biggest race and what race meant the most to you and how did you feel there's a listener called me a while ago and on the other phone asked me that my wife brought uh, it to me probably my biggest race of the winter was uh I got to say when I beat out that factory back Ford driver down there at, uh at Piedmont was, yeah Eddie Sharp was one probably the best moment but you know I'm going to tell something to this day and a lot of people don't know this they would not let me run Ronnie's socks that night. Because, you know, I was supposed to run Ronnie, and whoever won that race was supposed to run Ronnie. 
and I could not run him. They wouldn't let me. <laughs> well, wonder why. I ain't saying I ain't saying I could have beat him, but I'd have gave him a I'd gave him a good race. <laughs> and, and Ronnie was my hero too. I, I bought uh, my biggest hero is Richard Petty. I, I always. You wanted to be a and Richard I, Petty, didn't you? I sure did. I went down to his shop all the time. And uh, that's what I wanted to do instead of drag racing, but I ended up pro stock racing instead of NASCAR racing. Well, didn't you run two races with a hobby car or something, some kind of car, go kart well, or something? Well, if I told you I run around Talladega at two hundred one mile an hour in the car number forty eight one time. How'd you do that? That's what, uh, I'm going to back off that deal. But no, I, I won two. I won. I run two races round track. Uh, first one I got T-boned, the second one I won, and I never raced again on a round track. Okay. And that was a, that was a modified car. Yeah. And, uh, well, anyway, you had a passion to get in some kind of race car, and you did very well, and, and you made, and you sure made a name right here in North Carolina, and, and uh, we're going to get with you and uh, work out something with the North Carolina Drag Race Hall of Fame, and you're going to be helping us to get a list of people, and, uh, we thank you very kindly. We want to recognize those guys. So, Jimmy, thank well, you for your being with us tonight. And and like the farmer told the tater, I'll be planting you now and digging you later. All right. Well, thank you so much. You asked Jimmy Turner about me playing baseball. He knows how good a pitcher I was, too. <laughs> I heard that you was. That's where you got the nickname Goon, wasn't it? <laughs> no, I, I come from racing. Did you? Okay. I actually took my mama's car to drag put rope flying goon on it. That's how that comes about. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> now we got the uh, real story. You wouldn't tell me the real story about that. <laughs> now I know. Okay. Now you well, know. Thank you, All right. Well, thank you. Uh, You're my hero. Thank you much, buddy. Thank y'all. Bye. Good night, Jimmy. Good night. Good night. Now, that was that, that was an awful lot of good information and some interesting story. I like that very much. Good job, Bill. Good job, Jimmy, if you're still around there. It's just another racing guy that we, and that's what we are. We love racing, and and I, I pick on Jimmy a lot because I, I guess back in the 70s when I knew him, I used to pick on him. And I, when I saw him coming, I always got a big smile on my face because he was such a pleasure to be around and so upbeat all the time. He could take a joke. And if the joke was on him, he just laughed about it. But <laughs> awful good guy, really awful good guy. And his mother and dad were just wonderful people. His mother worshipped him and looked after him like he wouldn't believe. And Jimmy was well, well respected at the drag strip, on and off the drag strip. And I enjoyed all the time that I was fortunate enough to be around and spend with him. I was a lucky man to have done that. And Jimmy Patton, I hope you're still listening. You're my hero, and I thank a whole lot of you. But thank you so much for being on the show tonight. And I'll call him folks a little bit later on, probably tomorrow, and talk to him in person just a little bit about that. But a wonderful guy. I just wanted the people out there listening around the country and around the world to know Jimmy Patton. And what he's doing today, Tim, with that show, it's live, and he, he streams it. And... Uh, Boy, they have a lot of fun, but you wouldn't believe him. He said he's, what, 72, 71, 72 years old? But he's like a kid in the candy store, really. I mean, he's yeah. just wide open all the time, just like he was back in the day. So thank Jimmy Patton. Thank you a bunch. Well, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Gillstrap is still on my chat board, says, Thanks, Bill, to you 
for a great interview, and I think it was a great interview. And, oh, before we go any farther, let me tell you, we are broadcasting on our, our private virtual private network tonight from Las Vegas, Nevada. That's our, where our ICAST Media Studios are located tonight, and we're coming to you live from Las Vegas. Also, let's not forget, Bill, that we are a recruiter for the NRA. If you go to ICAST.network and check out everything on the home page, you'll learn about VPN and learn about your discount to the NRA. Okay, Bill, back to you. That's right. I'm going to cash in my chips here in a little bit because we've got another show coming on at 8 o'clock with Alex. But before we do that, uh, Tim, uh, you know the NRA will be at uh, uh, Mount Erie with us with a table, and you can renew, join up at uh, Mount Erie September. I see it was the 12th or the 14th. I can never keep that straight. Uh, 12th is what we've been saying. 12th, okay. But we'll be up there, and NRA will be there. And that's big NRA country, too. And, and NRA means a lot to us. They, uh, they'll teach the youngsters how to handle a gun, be respective of the gun. And they do an awful lot for us. And we got to, you know, support them. At this uh, time, uh, we, we need to protect our young kids and teach them how to handle guns right. And it's a great, great hobby. And I, I li- I'm sort of a collector myself. I like the old guns, the cowboy guns. And if you're an NRA member, they sure are out there to help you do this. Enjoy being a part of the gun ownership of this country. And that's becoming well, you know, more and more important day by day. It is. It is. And awful good people, you know. Awful good people. Yep. Now, uh, Mount Airy, old racing. Uh, that's what Mount Airy is about with the old racetrack up there. Everybody at Mount Airy knows about the old Mount Airy Speedway built in 1946. It's a three-quarter mile dirt track. It is still there. We had a parade out this past year to the Mount Airy Speedway and led by a 1947 highway patrol car, original patrol car, and people meeting that patrol car with the race cars behind it. They stopped along the highway and gave us a salute while they made pictures and and hollering at us, cheering us on. It was a great honor to be a part of that parade. We'll be doing it again this year out to the racetrack, and hopefully this year we'll get to go around that racetrack. It is still there. So I look forward to that taking place. I look forward to seeing all these old race cars up there and meeting the people. And a lot of these people, history just absolutely loves stock car racing history. That was a romantic period of our time in, in automobile racing. That's when racing was racing. And to be at Mount Airy and other events similar, to see these cars and talk to the people, I tell you, there's nothing better than that. And I tell you, I love it, I love it, I love it. And I love the old racing, I love it and love that. But just come on out to Mount Airy and be a part of the happenings up there, and you'll love it too. And and we had about, I guess, 50-some race cars up there last year. That was a pretty good number for the first year, and there'll be more there this year. You remember that card that Ronnie Thomas restored? Man, I got, I've got i got a postcard of that tacked up on my wall out there. It is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful car. And he even had an old uh, race hauler, a cab over Ford, painted to match the colors red and white of his first car. And he was Rookie of the Year, I do believe, that year. And uh, I was fortunate enough to get to build some engines for him. And his dad, Jay Thomas, too. But that it was a beautiful rig with a car 
and the truck that it was on, a cab overdrive up, and that was something to see. But a lot of that will be at Mount Airy. And uh, as we were talking earlier in the show, when you got Marshall Griffith with the Rowan Relic, and you've got the Kaiser boys wanting to build a car to honor uh, Ike Kaiser and Roby Combs, uh, when you look at this stuff that they're doing, bringing back the history of stock car racing and talking about it, recording it, and like our show, Tim, it's archived. You can pull it up at any time after the show tonight. You can listen to it again tomorrow, I suppose. But if you, you could spend in your spare time, you could listen to a show every night if you wanted to. I think we've got 100, haven't we, something like that? We've got about, about 161 or 62, I think. This is our fourth year. Can you believe that? No, I didn't think it was that long. It seems like it's been about a year, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, but this is our – we started in uh, February, kicked off our fourth year. And I think we look at the information on our. Yeah, guys. I know it, it's it's amazing. I said out here a lot of times when I'm at the computer writing things, and I can pull the show up and put it on in the background and listen to a lot, whichever one I pick out and listen to. And we've had, you know, we've got people on there that have since passed away. Like for instance, Gray London was a fabulous interview. Gene Hobby, we've got an interview with Gene Hobby that just brings tears to my eyes every time I listen to it because Gene and I were so close, but then Gene was close with everybody. You know, nobody did not like Gene Hobby. So, you know, it's that kind of emotional journey for me. And we've got uh, Soapy Castles. I mean, you look at the history he knows about. Yeah. And uh, Greg Moore, Bud Moore's son. Yeah. And of course, Allison Brothers. Uh, just on and on and on with the great people. The thing is, see, we're losing these people. And, uh, you go to our archives and and you can listen to them firsthand to tell their stories and tell you a lot of I like the technical stuff being that I used to work on them that you know really interests me I love the stories but I like the tech stuff and every time I talk to somebody I learn something you know well that's like doing doing the interviews with all these old guys as I have often discussed with you my end of uh, racing knowledge was from the infield of all these tracks and then all my years working for commercial radio and being able to interview the drivers and the pit crew. Your end of it is from being in the pits and actually involved with it. So you know a lot more about that end because I know nothing. And then as far as being a fan, that's where I come in because that's what I've always been for 60, uh, I guess, 68 years and it's always been from the infield to the top of the motor home. Maybe I've sat in the grandstands. One, two, three, four, five. I can count on one hand the number of times I've sat in the grandstands. So that, that makes my love of the sport as a fan what your love of the sport is as a participant. And think about this. The old racetracks. I mean, we even talk about the old racetracks. Now, that's going to be a lost art, too, one day when you ride by where it used to be a racetrack and there's a housing development or a shopping center there like Langhorne, Pennsylvania, Raleigh Speedway down at uh, Raleigh, North Carolina and then think about this I'm not going to tell my age but I probably won just a handful of people living today that saw a race back in 1940 and 41 I got to see, didn't know what I was looking at I got to see Lloyd C, the great Lloyd C win a race and Bill France was in that race and wrecked, got to see uh, Bob Flock, got to see my daddy got to see Fonny Flock and, and Roy Hall. Now, there's not many people that can say that. When we lose these people, friend, 
you either go to our archives and you won't find it in the book, but we saw it in color. We saw this deal in color, not black and white, but in color. And we can tell the story that'll make chill bumps run up and down your arms as we tell you the story. Yeah, I know. I know that's exactly right, is seeing it in color and knowing, you know, just the memories I have from all the infields that I've been in and all the racetracks all the, and, the, and the drivers that I've seen run. And, you know, I saw your daddy run at Columbia Speedway. Of course, I was just a little kid then. I think he won down there one night, did he not? Yeah, but the first NASCAR race, strictly stock, Grand National, run under the lights. Frank Mundy won it in uh, Perry's uh, Studio Baker, and my daddy run second behind him in Hubert Westland's Plymouth that Johnny Mance won the Southern 500 with the first Southern 500. So that's history. That's the way it was. And uh, I'll tell you a little story real quick because you got about three minutes. Those cars was illegal as John Dillinger was in the bank. Uh, <laughs> when they come after the inspection, Hubert pulled the intake and the exhaust manifold had come off at one place on that six-cylinder, and he laid it in the truck, covered it up in an army blanket, and under the army blanket that he covered the one off the car with was a stock carburetor and intake and the exhaust manifold, and that's what the inspector checked. In other words, he had a truck went on there, and he wasn't supposed to have it on there according to NASCAR rules at that time. So they cheated back then just like they tried to get by with today, and I could tell you some other stuff. One day we probably ought to have a show on how they cheated, and I can tell you some stuff that you never heard of that they did. I can tell you about a wreck a guy got into one time trying to get the car to set back right before it was inspected. He was four laps in the lead, and he knew he better raise that car back up before he got the checkered flag, and they checked it. And he got his arm hung in the door trying okay. to raise it back up, and he hit the fourth turn wall and had to make a pit stop. Fortunately, he was four laps in the lead. And that happened to Charlotte, and y'all figure out who that was, but that actually happened. <laughs> a lot of funny went on but uh, that's what happened back in those days and uh, I'm glad I'm still around to tell the tale and think about this I know there's people like Bruce Dillon and my neighbor Russ Mann and a few others that like to talk to me because they go to question me about well, what happened how did they do it and they were seeking information about what happened in those days because it was so intriguing they want to know and that's why what you and I are doing on these shows is so important is to preserve this history. As I said, we saw it in color. And thank you, Tim. Oh, thank you, Bill. But tell your neighbor, Russ Mann, that I absolutely love looking at those old photographs he posts on social media. He's had some things on there that just take me like a lightning bolt back to my younger days. You know, he's yeah, just man. great photographer, great photographer. But, Him and Clyde uh, Magnum. And Dargan Watts, if it wasn't for them, I tell you, they're doing a terrific service for us to preserve history, and so is Ed Heiss. Ed yeah. Heiss is in there and is helping everybody do these shows, and if it wasn't for people like that. And then think about what Bruce has done. He's got him a tribute car. Uh, he's thinking about building one, but he's got a 57 Chevrolet right now that he's carrying to these events, an old race car. And he wants to get a, another some kind of car. And Curtis Turner's daughter, Margaret Sue, look what she's done. She's got oh, one of old cars that show car, but she's got it ready and running. Bruce got it running for her, and uh, they're going to start taking it to events. And, I mean, you want to come to Manor and see Curtis Turner's convertible? Come on up there. Bruce has got it running. It'll be there. It'll be running. Come on up. 
really is, you know. Yeah. Well, Bill, thank you for another wonderful Thursday night. I appreciate it as always. Absolutely enjoyable, fantastic interview. Well, thank you, Tim. Thank all the listeners out there. I hope y'all enjoyed it. All right. Good night to you and Sheila. Take care and be safe. We'll do it. Okay, folks, we're going to move on and get Alex Nickerson on. He's got a uh, guest that he's lined up for tonight. Let me see if I can get. Get uh, Alex on here. Because his guest, I think, is supposed to call in, if I'm not mistaken. Good evening, Tim. Good evening, Alex. How are you? I'm fine. How about you? Doing fine, thanks. I got you on about a minute early since we don't know what time you guys going to call, do we? No, we don't. Okay. So, uh, whatever you want to talk about for a little while, talk about it. Well, I really don't have much to say, you know, because there isn't exactly anything interesting happening. <laughs> no? <laughs> how, how is the uh, COVID situation down there in Florida? Uh, I haven't actually paid too much attention to it, but it seems to be slowing down a lot anyway. Yeah, are they opening things back up? Apparently, oh, not at all. Not close to that. <laughs> hmm. Well, I don't know. Things in South Carolina is a type deal that uh, the governor says open them up, open this up, open that up, and most everybody's saying I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Yet I went out and took a ride today. You go by Walmart parking lot. In fact, I went by two WalMarts in the parking lot. One of them was two thirds full and. The one in the other one was well over half full. So it's looks like they're back in a lot of our little stores in the strip malls have reopened and people are rushing in there, you know, to see what they can get. So, I, you know, I don't know. It's just, hmm, I don't even know. Yeah, that's about how it is as far as I know around here where basically the stores... You wouldn't believe it, but it's too much to go into. Yeah, I'm but, sure. I'm sure. But drag strips have been more active around here lately. I mean, the side roads. Well, are you in school now, or are they, the school is out for you, or what's the deal? No. My classes continue. My last classes are next week. Because hmm, up here, they've closed all the schools for the rest of the year. I mean, they've been closed. Yeah. For well over a month, but it's just yeah. We're we're going to be closed for the academic year. Yeah, and now they're talking about what we're going to do with racing coming back. Whether it's going to be Darlington as to host the first race, or Daytona or Homestead or uh, Charlotte, I think they still haven't made that decision, and that's bouncing around so much. I'm getting cross-eyed trying to keep up with it. Well, at this point, I would say. Anybody who thinks they're still going to run the original intended schedule or even get 36 races in will might be nuts. <laughs> no, they are actually. I actually saw. I, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Here comes call. Mm. Hello, I cast media. Mm. We, we dropped it. It dropped him soon as he answered it. Yeah. Good afternoon, I cast media network. Yeah, uh, Johnny O'Connell for Alex. All right, yes, Johnny, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Well, welcome to Ghost Tracks and Legends. We're we're, we're here, you know. We 
talk about you know all sorts of things and we always like hearing some good stories and mostly we talk to get to learn stories of drivers like you and well sports car racing has its legends and you are definitely among them so i've gotten to watch a lot of your races over the years and it's an amazing journey because you were the factory driver for two major pro three major programs really both for very long times and were extremely successful in every venture well yeah i thank you you know yeah, yeah i'm blushing um yeah you know what I was totally lucky. You know, my career really didn't go the way I wanted. I wanted to be an open wheel guy and, uh, you know, get over to Europe and try to make the, you know, run at Formula One or Indy cars or something like that. But, uh, you know, even back then it was so, you know, uh, relying upon your ability to, to raise money and, yeah. uh, a, uh, uh, you know, the true story is, is that, you know, when, uh, you know, when I started out in 1985 racing for the Jim Russell School, I'd done a lot of karting before then, but there was myself, there was uh, Tommy Kendall, there was Jeff Krosnoff, there was Mark Wolikachuk, there was Jan Vikas. There were a lot of really fast, you know, guys coming up. And uh, But it was funny because like in 19, I think it was 86 or 87, Tommy started, you know, going the IMSA route and racing sports cars. And, uh, and then, you know, by 1989, he was getting paid. And, uh, and I, I started looking at things. And I'm like, man, I'm going the wrong direction. You know, the sports cars is really, you know, where, where, where it's at, because I, I mean, I'd had Bobby, you know, Bobby Ray Hall and Jackie Stewart trying to get me, you know, to raise money from American companies to race in Europe. But, uh, but we, you know, even with those guys, we struck out. So, uh, so, you know, probably the, you know, I mean, it was a great thing that, you know, the Nissan opportunity with Nissan came up and, uh, and that's really what got things going. Well, where did you, your racing bug, where'd you get bitten by that one? Oh my goodness. I mean, I, I literally, I, I must've been five, six years old and uh, we were vacationing in Cape Cod and they had a little go-kart track where you could, you know, rent the go-karts and, uh, you know, back back then, safety, you know, and lawyers weren't what <laughs> weren't what they are today. And so, uh, so you know, with my brother and sister, you know, remember when you're a little kid and you had to be a certain height to get on rides. And uh, I was I, I wasn't tall enough, but uh, so my dad said, "Slap it," you know, and we drove around the go kart track. And uh, you know, pretty much from that moment, I was like, I knew what I wanted to do. I was I was very fortunate that way. Yeah, race those little carts, you know, even the ones that the, like the, in, not in, like the, you used to have at the NASCAR speed parks. You get behind one of those things, they just, they just tickly up pink. They're, there's something just fun about pushing the car, car to its limit. Well, and you know what I mean? You say go-karts and people don't really understand just how completely, you know, badass and fast they are. I mean, it, you know, it is, uh, it, you know, there's a reason why, you know, top guys in the off season will still be carding yeah. because I mean, just the quickness of response and, you know, when you're, when your butt's literally out dragging on the ground, uh, you know, they're, they're really fast. And 
and the racing is really super fun. It's a great way, you know, for guys to learn racecraft at, at uh, you know, and how to compete against other guys, you know, without, you know, spending the amount of money that you need to race cars. True. And especially there are just so many different levels of go-kart available. Oh yeah. And I mean, you get to super carts and that's, you know, super fast, super violent. I mean, you're, you're, you know, when you drive a go-kart now, you got to wear like a rib protector because they corner so aggressively that you can actually break the ribs. So, uh, you know, athletically it's, it's a, it's a heck of a workout. That's for sure. Wow. I didn't even yeah. know that. That's, that's impressive. Cause I mean, some of those yeah. go-karts are more powerful ones. I mean, they're not too far from being able to race on you know, professional FIA graded tracks. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it is, like I said, you know, there's a reason guys training them and, uh, you know, back when I, you know, I chose my college because there was good go-karting nearby. I went to a place in Ohio, but I, I remember running go-karts around mid Ohio. And I mean, you were, you were hauling. I mean, it was, it was, it was uh, a ton of fun. So, uh, it, I mean, when you're going like 110, 150 miles, 15 miles an hour in a go-kart, you know, you're, 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 that's a good time. That's, for sure. Yeah. From the go kart, where'd you? What was the next step on the ladder you went? Well, you know what? I actually uh, I went through the Jim Russell School in 1983, and I was a junior in college then. And they every year they had a uh, a competition. They called it the Graduate Runoff, where if you hadn't raced with them, uh, you could enter this thing. And they uh, they it was open up to like 56 people. It's probably a pretty decent money maker for them. But, uh, but I, uh, I borrowed the, the money to do it from my father and, uh, and lo and behold, I won the thing. And that gave me a, a year free racing with, you know, the Jim Russell school in 1984. So I did that. I won that championship and uh, believe it or not, Roger Penske didn't call. I was pretty, I'm still pretty pissed off at Roger about that. <laughs> and, uh, and so uh, at the time, I was working for the Gala Wine Company, and I uh, I quit that job. I, I saved up a couple thousand dollars and, you know, uh, went to work for the Jim Russell School for free. They had a deal where you worked for free, but you worked as a mechanic and prepped the cars and all that kind of stuff. And then they let you race again. And so, uh, so I did that again in 1985, won the championship again in 1985. And by that time, I met a couple of people that were willing to put a little bit, bit of money behind me. <laughs> Out of curiosity at the Jim Russell School, because, I mean, I know a lot about his own personal career. Did you actually get to work directly with Jim Russell himself or just with the instructors? No, you know what? I never met him, actually. So, like, it was a uh, kind of more like a franchise deal. So the, back then it was the Jim Russell British School of Motor Racing. And so the North American franchise was owned by a guy named Jacques Couture. He was a French-Canadian, great guy, always loved Jacques. And, uh, but we had, we had really good instructors back then. There was a guy named James Besmer and, uh, and Richard Spinard. They were all, of course, Canadian. But, uh, but really good guys that uh, were very inspirational to me. Well, that was my mistake. I thought that I didn't realize the Jim Russell School was that was international even back then. I mean, it, it's a huge program. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the uh, the British School. You know, I mean, the main where Jim Russell was based, and I want to think it was it was Silverstone or Snetterton or something. 
is where their main base was. But yeah, no, the North American franchise was uh, owned by Jacques Couture. He had a, uh, he had one school at Montreal. He had a school at Laguna Seca and then Riverside, which is where I went. Laguna Seca and Riverside. Wow, you you probably had a hard time choosing between those two. Yeah, well, you know, tough to beat Riverside. I I, I love Riverside, you know, and uh, but but Old Laguna was pretty was pretty amazing too, you know. Before they changed it, I mean, Old Corners two and three were were stupid fast corners, a lot like the Kink at Road America, where you know the fast guys could do it fast, and you know those that weren't as brave couldn't do it as fast, but. Uh, but that said, you know, the, the changes that they made to Laguna with the, you know, adding the, adding the infield part around the lake, you know, I, I like that circuit. It's it's always been pretty good to me. Yeah, that's one of those deals where I look at it. I've never actually gotten to watch an old race from Laguna, but they, they had a good layout with the old layout and they have a good layout with the current one. But the, the best yeah. part is as long as the corkscrew is there, I mean, who cares what the- well, you know, you know what the funny thing is, is everybody's like corkscrew, corkscrew. You know, I mean, that's the the legendary corner that is Laguna Seca. But you know what? When you've got, when you you know, you've been through it a couple times, you're like, okay, it's a good corner and it's fun. But uh, but there's other parts of the racetrack that are actually a lot more, you know, fun or interesting, challenging. Yeah, challenging to go through. It is. Uh, it uh, you know, interesting thing. I don't know whether this is true or not, but I've been told that when they built Laguna Seca, they initially were running it in a clockwise direction. Yes, and I've that, read that back before. The, yeah, back in the late 50s, a lot of the cars didn't really have the power to get up the corkscrew. So that's why they changed direction. Huh, that's fine. Yeah, a little, little Yeah, I've read of cars running you know, tracks backwards because the fuel tank was on the wrong side and whatever. So. Yeah, oh yeah, no, it is. Well, it's interesting. I actually read a something today about, you know, because of this stupid virus, um, you know, that, uh, you know, they're thinking of maybe doing double weekends for Formula One races. And, you know, Charles Leclerc was uh, thinking, yeah, no, you do do one race in one direction and then race the same circuit the other direction, which is which is always a trip because I've done that before. And uh but safety-wise, you can't do it because the way the guardrail overlays. Yeah. You know, it's always laid in one direction. You probably read the same article I did then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that, uh, well, I thought it was a great idea, you know, when, uh, back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was an instructor at Bondurant, every now and then we'd run Sears Point backwards, and uh, completely insane. It was really, really fun. There must but, be real. Uh, but, Especially approaching some of those downhill drops coming at the hairpin the wrong way. Oh yeah, no, you'd be in a in a turn eleven. You would be hauling. You would be hauling. So uh, yeah, no, it was uh, it was a lot of fun. So well, you clearly you're quite accomplished as a racing instructor. So that somewhere along the line, this must have opened up a new opportunity for you. Well, you know what? It's interesting because even, you know, for a lot of my career, like when I was racing with Nissan, I was, you know, still instructing and coaching at Bondurant. And then, uh, and then I, you know, I did my stint with Corvette. And then when I joined Cadillac, I, uh, you know, the Bondurant school brought me back, you know, as vice president. And I enjoyed that. I, 
I enjoy coaching. I enjoy teaching, uh, you know, what, what, what it is we do on the racetrack. And, uh, so it, uh, you know, we actually, myself and Darren law who, you know, uh, runs flying lizard, you know, a long time buddy of mine. Uh, and actually when I was vice president of Bondurant, he was COO. And so we, we started a, a new company this year, uh, to do track day events, but kind of like a fantasy camp. So, you know, you do a normal track day with Chin or somebody like that. Well, you just get to run on the racetrack, but. Uh, the way we kind of structured ours is you're always on the racetrack with myself. So I'll be in another car. Darren will be in another car. The first program we did, we had Ari Leyendijk. Um So, uh, so it's, you know, we were going <laughs> to, it kind of stinks. We were going to do one at Gingerman with both Ari and Max Pappas. We were going to do one at the national Corvette museum with Jordan Taylor and Andy Pilgrim, you know, so it's an opportunity you know, to not just have like the track day experience with, and it's always cool, you know, running your own car and getting to pull the trigger, but then to be out there with guys that, you know, have made it to the highest levels and be coached from, and, you know, be able to say, you know, you're on the track with them. And, yeah. uh, but unfortunately for this stupid virus, we've had to cancel a couple. We got, you know, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed. We've got one at Sebring April 13th. And so it'll be myself, Darren, uh, Ricky Taylor. It was going to be Helio Castro Neves, but they rescheduled the Indy 500. So you know, Elio can't make it, and so uh, looks like Jordan will be there. So, uh, so but you know, just a just a you know a cool opportunity to to do a track day, get out there in your Porsche, your Corvette, your Ferrari, whatever you run, Cadillac, and uh, and and be on the circuit at the same time as us. Yeah, and then I mean, that, in a way, that also provides a great oppor- learning opportunity for those who are actually gentlemen racers because they can watch what you are doing on the track and learn from it. Yeah, you know, but it's a funny thing. You went into a room of a hundred people and you asked who in here is a good driver, you'd probably see a hundred hands. <laughs> and and I think you know when people get out there and they you know, play, you know, drive around with guys that have been doing it their whole life and have reached the highest levels. They realize, wow, there is so much I can learn and improve on. And, uh, so, uh, so yeah, you know, and, and for us, that's fun. It was, you know, it, it was interesting, you know, after the very first program we did, we did it at the private country club, uh, apex in Phoenix, Arizona. And, uh, and we finished the day. We had such a good time. And Ari comes up to me. And, he, and you know, Ari and I go back. We were teammates in IRL in 97. And uh, he's like, anytime, anytime you want me to do one of these programs, let me know. Because he had a blast. So, so yeah, no, it is, it is fun. You know, right now everybody's just, you know, running simulators and, you know, doing virtual racing. But there's nothing like being out there and, and pulling the trigger. Yeah, a simulator can simulate what the timing and the ground effects and everything, but it can't simulate the actual physical feel. Yeah, no, it's actually, you know, I mean, there are parts that are similar. Um, you know, a lot of guys can't use simulators. I, You know, I read that Michael Schumacher couldn't do it because they made him dizzy, and I've known other guys that, that makes him dizzy. But you don't really get the G-force effect of what braking feels like and uh, an acceleration feels like, and so uh, so there's a there's a big disconnect. It's funny after uh, in Long Beach, 
I think it was 2015 or whatever. I just taken the lead from Olivier Beretta and then uh, Kevin Estra, you know, followed me through and then Beretta wrecked us all out. And, uh, and I made a, I made a comment <laughs> that, you know, reminded people, Hey, the real thing isn't a video game. And, uh, and I got a lot of angry emails from gamers. So, uh, but, uh, you know, in the, in the real world, you can't hit reset. You know, you can't, you know, you don't get a, a do-over. But uh, but they are, you know, it is a lot of fun. And I, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that I'm enjoying, you know, it's kind of neat when you turn on, you know, uh, the TV and you see, you know, iRacing, uh, you know, on NBC. That's a, that's, a, that's a cool thing. Yeah, I can imagine the angry, what the angry emails sound like. But at the same time, I think the escapades we are seeing from the, I racing event, I racing events. We'll say that it a lot of those stereotypes are quite well still applying. Yes, yeah, yeah. No, it is. Uh, well, I mean, if yeah, again, you 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 drive a guy differently, you know, on I racing than you do in real life. But you know, the one thing one thing I noticed is. You know, as uh, you know, over the past several years, you, you had a whole lot more what I would call video game passes taking place where a guy just throws it into the corner, hoping everybody gets out of the way, you know, like like that happens in a, in a video game. So, it, yep. uh, you know, the sports sports changed, but uh, call them aluminum you know, brakes. Of course, cars yeah. aren't aluminum anymore. Mostly, car- most of them have carbon fiber. And they're exactly. And it's expensive to fix them. Yeah. And to me, that, that yeah. makes a big difference between the one world and the other. One is there's a lot of money at stake. The other one, you're, the only thing at stake is some personal pride. That's it, exactly. No, I agree with you. So I'm curious how, how you came to be one of the lead drivers involved in the, the legendary Nissan GTX program. Well, you know, it was actually at the time I'd been working on my, my formula car, you know, career. And uh, I did uh, actually when Nissan originally tested me, uh, I was the quickest at the test, but they didn't pick me. And uh, they, they went with somebody else for, for other, you know, not speed associated re- uh, reasons. And then, uh, and then uh, it was interesting because I had I'd moved to Arizona. And uh, so that I could coach, you know, or instruct at the Bondurant School. And I'd literally been there a week or two when NPTI was testing at the same facility. And I just went over there to shake hands and kiss babies. And one of the guys was like, hey, Brabham's got to leave early tomorrow. You want to finish his work? And I was like, game on. And so, uh, so you know, I did that test, went really, really quick. And, uh, and from that point on, I was pretty much you know, a Nissan factory guy, they involved me in the GTP development and the group C development. And, uh, back then Nissan was giving a very serious look at doing indie cars. And so they had, uh, they had picked myself and Jeff Brabham to be the guys to do it. But sadly, you know, uh, the president in Nissan had a heart attack at the same time the yen tanked and then Nissan's new president decided to take them in a different direction, you know, promoting the family vehicle and the Altima and all that kind of stuff. So, so they, uh, but because I, because I'd gone quick and all that kind of stuff, they moved me over to the, the GTO program. 
Yeah, and that GTO program ended up it more than on more than one occasion stunned the racing world. Well, that was a fast car. That was, you know, that was a neat time because you know you had no driver aids, you didn't have traction control, you didn't have ABS, you know, H pattern, and your your power numbers were crazy. You were, you know, seven hundred ninety eight hundred horsepower with, you know, torque and you know plus seven hundred, you know, horsepower. So. Uh, so yeah, that that car was a beast. Really, really, really challenging to drive. But once you figured her out, man, she was a lot of fun. That's for sure. And like you know, you got quite a few major wins in that car. It was a, I mean, like I said, it was fast. And it, but the most important thing at that time for a GT car, it was fast and reliable. Well, yeah, and that car was, you know, we had, we had, you know, one year, I want to say it was 94, maybe 95, where, you know, we might have, should have won, you know, the the sister car won Daytona, but uh, but the one that we were in, we were leading, then we, we broke a crank, which was a really rare deal. But uh, but for the most part, that car was, yeah, hugely reliable and uh, very stout, very stout car. And uh, like I said, great you know, great power, hot, really hot car. But, uh, but yeah, no, those, uh, those were good times. You know, there's a couple, it's a weird deal when you go to historic events and you start seeing old race cars of yours, you know, showing up, but that is, that is definitely one I'd like to get back in. Yeah, for sure. And what was it like, you know, cause one of the things that goes unnoticed is, you know, they talk, you hear about the, the niece on, you know, it won both Daytona and Sebring overall and, was it 94 or 95 94 but the bigger thing is you were driving a car that according to the rule book shouldn't have been racing for the overall win well yeah you know what again in that era yeah that was the ps professional sports car psc or whatever the andy evans era and uh and so like you know i in all fairness you know, a bunch of the prototypes, they were quicker, but they weren't as developed. And uh, so they had mechanical issues. But uh, but I remember that year where, you know, you start out and we're running well. And, you know, as you would go down to the old turn seven, you remember old turn seven of Sebring. Uh, I liked it better that way myself. But uh, it uh, but you there would be a, a scoring, you know, board up there. And it was really fun, you know, as the race ran on, you know, you you start seeing, you know, the number 76 car and then it's getting, you know, then you're in fifth then you're in fourth then you're in third. And, uh, so, you know, it's really, you know, when you're, you're hauling, you know, down into turn seven, you know, and you're seeing your car number, you know, in front of you up on the, on the scoring pylon, you know, that was a pretty cool feeling. And, uh, so it was, you know, and, and a lot of that, you know, goes to, you know, just our durability. You know, again, that car was a very stout car. And, uh, but also at the same time, you know, uh, all of us, myself, Steve Millen and John Morton, uh, you know, showing a lot of mechanical sympathy, you know, back then, you know, you, you, you had to be gentle to your car. You, you couldn't abuse it. And I think all of us did a really nice job of that. That that is true, and then I mean, you also had John Morton involved. I mean, who was another super fast driver who had had lots of success. I mean, you just had you had oh, like oh, yeah, you had the ultimate yeah, team going there. Legend when it comes yeah, legend when it comes to Nissan, and uh, and so yeah. But I mean, as you know, 
as, as far as, you know, uh, you know, he could, he could do the pace he needed to do, but he was, he always gave you back a good car. So that was a good thing about John. This is true. I know. Unfortunately, I I'm unfortunate. I was not old enough to even see most of these races, let alone remember them. But you know, hearing you talk about them, you're like the old turn seven at Sebring. I know what it is. I've looked it up before. I can, you know, I can imagine exactly what you are talking about. It brings an interesting color into all this. How you know everything changes, and you you adapted to a lot of changes, both in the regulations and the courses. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it is, you know, the the. It's it's interesting because just the way technology has changed things, you know, those guys that got 1600s on their SATs, well, they 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 know how to make race cars go fast, but in they've in many ways they've taken drivers out of the equation because you know uh, equation because you know a, a race car now you get a new uh, you know a you know GT Le Mans car GT3 car right now they're very easy to drive, you know, and and it's much more difficult to to tell who the true talent is. And so, uh, you know, technology has changed things, but, uh, you know, that's the, you know, um, I can't say I'm a big fan of all this, you know, BOP and driver rating crap. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, BS myself, but, uh, it, uh, you know, back to, you know, back in the day when racing was pretty darn great. And that includes all the, you know, American Le Mans series days. You know, sanctioning body puts out a rule book. Whoever builds the best car gets to win. You know, it's that simple. And if if I'm racing for Corvette and Ferrari comes out and they got a better car, well, I better make mine better. You know, and uh, you know the way things are now, it's like, all right, well, you know, we built a great car and we're beating everybody. What are they going to do? They're going to slow us down to give those guys that didn't build a good car uh, a chance to win. So. You know, it's kind of that that stupid everybody gets a trophy mentality. I can't say I'm, <laughs> I'm a big fan of it. Oh, I like you're you're very candid, and that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's one of those things. So, from remembering watching those races, one of those things that was why you know there were ten years ago now three classes of GT car. You had GT one, GT two, GT three. GT2 was for the fast cars that didn't want to spend money. GT1 was for the people who want were unafraid to spend money and didn't want to be regulated back to the pack. Excuse me, gentlemen. We've got to pause 20 seconds for network ID. Be right back to you. All right. Now that we have your attention, thank you for listening to ICAST Media, the Freedom Network. Visit us at ICAST.network. Now, back to the podcast. Thank you for the break. We're back to you now, guys. Go ahead and thank you. This is great. Yeah, so as I was just saying, you know, you, you know, there were just different rule sets for different playbooks, and you had the, I mean, Corvette, you got, you basically literally caused the class to bite the dust because you were just so much better at it than everybody else. <laughs> Well, you know, the Corvette time was interesting, you know, it, uh, and I joined at a great time, uh, you know, as, you know, previous to that, I'd been racing for Panos 
and uh, and I could pretty much see the writing on the wall in which direction Panos was going. I didn't. I wasn't very, you know, uh, excited about you know what that race team was doing, and uh, and so uh, you know Corvette was making a significant investment you know, in the sport and trying to have a presence. And, uh, you know, I joined, it, it literally was a, you know, I left a message on Doug Feehan's, you know, uh, voicemail and eight hours later had an offer. And so, uh, it, uh, all that worked out well, you know, it was a great time back then, you know, the, uh, the Corvette versus Viper battle was, was pretty good, but then Celine was coming in and then you had other manufacturers back then in GT one, you know, Ferrari, Aston Martin, all that kind of stuff, uh, and and good factory programs. So, uh, so that was some, some great racing. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, what we, you know, myself and Ron fellows, what we achieved with Corvette, you know, really put that, that brand, you know, and Chevrolet back, you know, uh, on the map for people, as far as being, you know, one of the world's great sports cars and, uh, you know, thank goodness they've, you know, they've maintained that over the years. And, uh, and, and I, I can only think that it's helped, you know, of course, Corvette, but Chevrolet as well as a, a marketing tool for hey, here we are on the world stage, you know, racing, you know, the top brands and winning. This is true. And one of those things, you know, the Corvette car, one of the most fascinating things that I've ever seen in a race car, and I don't know if they had this when you were driving for them, but was when I saw an in-car of the of it, the Corvette, at Lamont at night, and I noticed for the first time that it has a rear-view camera. I was like, I've never seen a race car with a rear-view camera. Well, and not just that, but it is, uh, you know, we, we actually – that, that rear view camera actually had radar on it as well. And so, which was actually something people don't know this at that time, I was racing for Cadillac, but we did a lot of the development work on that system on the Cadillac. And so, uh, so the value of that is, you know, is to know, you know, if you're hauling down Mulsanne, you know, and you got a car behind you at night, you can't tell, is it a prototype? Is it a GT car, whatever. And so with the, the, you know, addition of that radar, you would, you know, when you know, who's coming up on you, you have a much better idea as to how to, how to drive forward. So, uh, so that was a very cool system. And, uh, you know, again, where, you know, you know, Pratt Miller, you know, the engineering arm of Corvette racing, uh, you got some smart guys there, man. And they, they came up with some really good, good, you know, gadgets. That is for sure. And then, yeah, yeah, that radar must have really come in handy because one of the things that I've always seen that you always have that you had to deal with as a GT1 driver and LMP2 drivers also have to de- had to and still have to deal with is you're both lapping people and being lapped. Yeah, it's funny that people always think that it's the prototypes, the fastest category, where you know the best drivers are. And, and not, which is no, you know, I don't mean a, that they're not, there are a lot of great drivers there, but when you're in a prototype, you only look forward, you know, you just drive forward when you're in like the lower categories, you know, you're looking forward, but you're also having to look backwards and having guys stick you with really bad moves and putting you in a bad position. So it, 
you know, it is one of the things when, you know, uh, that, that people that really, you know, that haven't been out there, they don't know what the challenge is of being in the slower category. Yeah. This lower category, you know, when you're doing that, I mean, you're also fighting your own race to, it, it, it's a lot of work. It really is. It's a lot of work. Oh yeah. So I'm curious, cause it was, it was a strange car. It was unique for its era. The, the Pano is LMP one car. How did it, was it different for the car? I don't know if you ever got to drive different contemporary prototypes because it was, the engine was in front. Well, you know what, I mean, it was actually a really well-behaved car. Uh, the challenge of it, and I got, yes, I have, you know, I got to drive a lot of rear engine prototypes. Um, you know, the challenge of the panels was where you sat in that you sat literally about a foot in front of the rear wheels. You know, you really sat in the back of that, that thing. So the sensation of oversteer, you know, if you got into an oversteer, your body motion was a lot more. And so, uh, so that was, that was kind of difficult and challenging, but, uh, no, that was a, that was a, a great car. It, you know, it's unfortunate in 2000, I really thought we'd, we would have a good shot at winning Le Mans with that car. Uh, you know, we had, uh, some great, you know, Robert Yates was building the engines that year, stout, stout engines. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's some behind-the-scenes political stuff that uh, that kind of didn't help the uh, the effort. But uh, but yeah, no, that was a very cool car to race. And actually, in in 2000, we finished fifth overall at Le Mans, and uh, so uh, so that was that, that was a pretty cool event. Definitely, and you know, after you know, unfortunately, it was after you left that program. They you know they got this the sweet smug victory of defeating Audi at the Nürburgring, but uh, 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 you were running your own race and you were have, already having fun in a Corvette. What did it mean to you? <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, you know what? No, I think they beat... No, no, it was in 2000. It was, it was in 2000? Oh, that's right. It was. Yeah, it was Magnuson and Brabham that, that I think got that uh, that win. And yeah, I think it, in, uh, in 2001... Uh, I think they, you know, uh, yeah, 2001, they had at Washington, D.C., the big win. I think that was the last win for that car where they beat the Audi, you know, square up and they were in the, in the, in the, the, the prototype. Yeah, that, they were really, you know, it was the little guy trying to take it to the big guys there because when you were drove for them, too, you also were competing against BMW. Yeah, yeah, no, there were, there were, some, there were some strong efforts then, so. Yeah. Yeah. And all those so overall I mean the Corvette program it sounds to me that it really even though you might not realize it it had a lot to do actually to, with GM's road car development oh no yeah that was when uh, you know the the uh, relationship between racing and production you know, improved dramatically. Then actually when you went from C4 or excuse me, C5 to C6, so much of the stuff in C6 was put on the streetcar because we needed it on the race car. And, uh, so it, uh, which was, you know, which was a challenge, you know, everybody forever was like, no, nah, Corvette's got to have the flip up headlights. Well, that was drag, you know? And, uh, so we changed that. And then, you know, it'd been 50 years running on Goodyear tires. And you're like, well, 
Michelin's building a better tire. So we, we got on Michelin. So it, uh, you know, the race team really, you know, helped improve the, the road car, you know, uh, a great deal. And the relationship, you know, between the engineers on, uh, at Pratt and Miller and, and Chevrolet, uh, you know, to this day, I think uh, they both really work well together. Sounds it. And then the next big transition in your career was you went from endurance racing, running tracks like Daytona, Le Mans, Sebring, to doing sprint races in the Cadillac. Which I got to tell you, I loved because that was where my career started, you know, as a sprint guy. And, uh, you know, the effort put forth by Cadillac, uh, you know, with the CTSV, great car. Uh, and then, of course, the ATSV. The ATSV was insane and how good that car was. Um, really, you know, enjoyed it. Had a great, you know, out of my seven years with Cadillac, won four championships. Should have won five. Should have won five. Should have won 2016 but uh, but love that because, I mean, it was standing starts, aggressive, you know, high-end factory drivers and factory efforts. That was, uh, you know, 2015, 2016 were some pretty spectacular years. So, uh, I can't believe the manufacturer and factory driver involvement you had going on there at that time. Yeah, no, it was, it was really fun, intense racing. And, and then it just uh, went. Well, that's because, you know, World Challenge – blew it you know you know i uh, the you know the sprint format was awesome everybody loved it it was funny because i was actually having a conversation with with jordan taylor i think this was 2016 and yeah because he oh, at the end of 2016 and uh you know in in 2016 the majority of imsa guys wanted to race world challenge you know because they could see how intense and fun the racing was and, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, unfortunately that, you know, that, you know, they went to that sprint X malarkey and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, it, yeah, uh had, but, you know, they had in their hands, the opportunity, you know, in my estimation, just, you know, I'm more of a historian. They had the opportunity yeah. to be, you know, to actually be the return sports cars to the mainstream front of the national television audience that it had 30 years before and they, yeah. they flushed it yeah well you know it happens it you happens know, yeah. uh it's uh you know it's unfortunate you know everybody you know all the guys that uh that i raced with against back then you know you see each other and we're we're all very grateful that we had that opportunity and uh it uh but you know the you know, the sport's transitioning a little bit. We'll, we'll just kind of have to wait and see where it winds up. So from all that, out of curiosity, because, I mean, he was a young driver that you got the chance to take under your wing, and then because of the combination of the change in the World Challenge rules and the ending of the Cadillac program, what happened to Michael Cooper? Well, Michael, Michael, you know, great guy, and uh, he is uh, – you know, he, he luckily got hired on to be a McLaren factory driver for NGT4. And so uh, he almost won the championship last year. And uh, I think Ian James won it in the panels. Um, and then, uh, but I think he's got a, you know, good shot this year. He's got some tough competition. 
but uh, so but is... no, Michael Michael's doing well. It is you know it's a it's a you know it's a really tough deal you know being a being a young guy. I think Michael's twenty nine or thirty now. You know, trying to get the opportunity where a team's going to you know or manufacturer's going to bring you up to that next level. So it is uh, you know it's it's tough times to be a racing driver now. Yeah. And... That yeah, I didn't know. So he's still, he's actually still in World Challenge. That that would explain that because I was expecting to finally see him break into the ranks of IMSA, and I never saw him. But World Challenge lost me my interest about the same time they lost you as a driver. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. Uh, well, you know, and I mean, I'd love to see Michael, you know, get the opportunity with a team in IMSA. But uh, you know, I mean, the the vast majority of teams right now are well, how much money can you bring? You know, yeah. it's not like, hey, you're a stupid, wicked, fast guy. I'm putting you in my car. Like, it's been through most of sports car history. You know, uh, now it's, uh, hey, how much money can you bring? We're, so. we're repeating the, the vicious cycle of sports car racing. New classes exactly. introduced. Anybody can run. Then you need money to yeah. put one gentleman driver. Then it, everybody has to be a gentleman driver. Then the class collapses and the cycle repeats. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's pretty frustrating, but. It, you know, those are the cards that we're dealt right now. Yeah. I have to ask, since we didn't actually really get to talk about much about it, what was it like for you, your opportunity in IRL? Um, you know what? It's really, it's that, that's a great question. Um, so the Nissan deal has come to the end, end of 95. They announced the IRL. You know, the guys that I've been racing with, they don't have anything. And we raise some money to do the IRO. And so our very first test uh, is at Walt Disney World. And, uh, you know, 95, Renard. Now, you got to imagine, you know, man, this is what I, I had wanted to do. And, uh, you know, to, to be, you know, get back to my open wheel roots. And, you know, I always felt I could have, you know, done some pretty cool things there. And, uh and so I'm driving down pit lane, and then you pull out on the oval. And no lie, dude, the only thing I could think was, man, I can't believe I don't get to run this on a road course. That it was all just oval stuff. And, you know, on an oval, if the car is right, it's easy. It's easy. Uh, the thing is, I only have the car right about 3% of the time. <laughs> so, it, to be honest with you, it sucked. Um you know, we, we did Indy, you know, in 96, uh, you know, we qualified 29th, you know, I think we got as high as like 11th or 12th, uh, before the first pit stop. And then we had a fuel pump fail. And then the next year at Indy, you know, driving one of Foyt's cars, uh, you know, Scott Sharp had been their guy. He like dinged him his head twice. He had two concussions. So, they put me in as the replacement. And I got to tell you what, driving around Indianapolis in an AJ Foyt car was easy. It was easy. It felt so nice. But then I had an oil fitting break, and then it was eight months learning to walk again. And uh, so, you know what I mean? I, it, 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 to be honest with you, it was not, it's not what I would have liked it to be. I would, you know, I wanted to, you know, drive an Indy car and road courses and stuff like that. So, you know, I didn't get that, that, that chance. Um, and, uh, you know, it is, it is what it is, you know, but, you know, and in, in hindsight, well, it was, you know, after that, that I got hired by Panos and then that, you know, my sports car career 
you know, again, took it, took another run. So, uh, so I was very, very blessed. Wow. That's kind of an interesting, kind of sad that you didn't get to run on road courses, but you, you took the opportunity that was given to you and you did get, you know, four races. You did it from what I see. You did get at least, you got a couple top tens anyway. So you made the most of what was a tough opportunity. Oh yeah. Yeah, no, I did. They, they, you know, I mean, shoot, had we, you remember that first year in the IRL, uh, we, uh, it was only three races. It was, uh, Disney, then Phoenix, then Indy. And then, uh, had we finished Indy, we would have won that championship, believe it or not, because we finished like 10th at Disney. And then we were third at Phoenix. Phoenix was actually fun. And, uh, but, uh, you know, it, uh, you know, it, it, it I, I have no regrets. I mean, a lot of really good guys got, you know, injured or killed in that era. And, uh, you know, I made it through. So, uh, so I got, uh, I've got no complaints. I've got stories to share. So what do you mean when you said it was easy, you know, easy can have various definitions in the world context of racing. Oh, you mean like ovals? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, easy as in like, it's easy. You know, I mean, when the car's right, you know, it, it, it's not doing anything naughty. It's not got a big oversteer or understeer. And, uh, it is, uh, I mean, easy. And, uh, it, uh, but, you know, rarely, you know, rarely is that the case. You know, I think cars, you know, if you look at right now, you know, the, you know, when you watch the Indy 500, the cars are much closer than they ever have been. I think the cars, you know, are much better engineered all around, but, uh, but I mean, it, it literally, you know, it is that guy that's engineering the car that, uh, you know, if you've got a good car, it's, it, it literally is easy. You know, I remember like after qualifying in 96, you know, uh, you know, that was the year Ari was on the pole at like 236. And, uh, you know, I came up to me as like, Hey, why are you breathing the throttle in one? And I'm like, cause I'm scared. I'm going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? The car was evil. And, uh, and I'd seen too many guys, you know, that thought, wow, Indy 500, this is my one opportunity. And then they get a trip to Methodist And 96 was the year Scotty Brayton got killed. And, uh, so, you know, I mean, no, you're playing for keeps. There were no softer walls. And, uh, but, uh, but, you know, unfortunately I, I, I did not have a, have a great card, Indy. Well, we still have time. I can't curious. You've got to drive so many cars over the years. Which one? Which one was the best car you got to race? Well, you know, hard to pick a best. You know, the the Cadillac ATSV was insane with how good that was. I mean, if that car had been on Michelin tires, forget about it. I mean, it definitely, in my mind, would have been faster than than the Corvette. The Corvette, the C7. You know, I got to race that at Le Mans very well mannered the the smoothness of that uh of the v8 was was really nice uh back in my nissan days i got to do a lot of uh, testing in a uh in a prototype a group c car called the p35 which was one of the coolest experiences you know that was you know in the early days of full-on carbon rotors and that was a uh that was a v12 and uh screaming engine and uh sadly i never got to see a racetrack but uh 
You know, I mean, hard. So it's really hard to pick just one. You know, I mean, if you ask what is the, you know, <laughs> the that moment that that you know maybe perhaps was most magical was you know getting in a Crossley Formula Ford in 1983 and uh, you know driving around Riverside, you know, uh, it, after go karts. I mean, then I can I can still you know I can still smell the car i can still you know visualize how the seat you can move the seat up and back you know the gauges and all that kind of stuff it uh you know that was that was pretty pretty pure cool driving and so uh it uh, i mean every 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 single car in every single stage there are things that you really really enjoy about it uh but uh you know as far as just the pure the pure driving, you know, it, yeah, it might have been that 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 Crosley Formula Ford. That was a that was a pretty neat piece. And the other one that I'm going to ask will also be tough for you is since you had so many moments, which which victory was your best? Ooh, well, you know, there were there was there was a lot. There was uh, too many of them. You know, one of the. There, well, I'm not really well. I know there. Yeah, I, dude. You know what? I I got lucky. I won them all four times, and so you know, anytime you know, I for some reason I don't know. I was crazy lucky there. I got on that podium nine times, which is you know pretty pretty stupid, and uh, and that's that's pretty special. But uh, but great drives. You know the the I think it was 2014 somewhere around there. The World Challenge uh, Championship. You know, it's between myself and James Sofranis. He was in the Audi, I was in the Cadillac. And and man, I gotta tell you, World Challenge did not want me winning at all. You know, they did not want Cadillac winning at all. And uh, so we show up at the last race. I've got to win the race to win the championship. Audi brings in Renee Rass, you know, to harass me and all that kind of stuff. And uh, you know, long story short, you know, uh, I. I Ended up taking the lead and winning that race with five minutes to go. That was a, that was a pretty cool event. And so, uh, so that one. But you know what? There's there's also you know their Corvette wins. There's you know the first you know solo win I got driving for Nissan. That was cool. Um, you know there are too many. You know to 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 pick just one. And uh, it uh, you know again like like I said I was. I was very blessed to be surrounded, you know, with, with good cars and, uh, and good people. And, uh, and I was angry. <laughs> so it, uh, it, uh, it all worked out pretty good. Yeah. You really, that, that, that's an amazing story. You know, I didn't get, I guess I didn't get to see that year. I mean, yeah. You had to pull that one off at Houston too, a track that is not exactly forgiving. Yeah, no, that was, it wasn't, and it was actually a race that started in the wet. So, uh, so you, you really had to manage your tires and all that kind of stuff. But, uh, but yeah, that was, uh, that was, a, that was, a, that was a pretty special win. So, uh, it was, uh, yeah, no, no, good, good times. Well, Johnny, we've reached the end of our hour, unfortunately, but I want to thank you for taking the time to come on tonight, join us in here and share these amazing stories with us it was a real pleasure to get to interview you well it's my pleasure you know anytime i can uh share a little bit of the passion and then love of you know that i've been able to spend my whole life doing it's uh, it's a good thing so uh, i was very grateful for the invitation thank you 
It's our pleasure. Thank you for coming on. You have a good night, Johnny. You do the same. Thank you very much. Bye. Bye. Well, Alex, that was quite an interesting interview. I had no idea he had won at Le Mans four times. That is just amazing. I I wish they would televise that entire race sometime because what little portions I have seen of it over the years has always been fascinating, to say the least. It's just a fantastic wow. place to watch a race. Just my, my personal opinion, there is nothing like watching... Le Mans at night, just watching the headlights pierce through the darkness, making out, you can see the, just enough of the car to make out which car it is, and you have the nice glowing board that shows the car number. Yeah, you do, it's the, I think the 24 hours of Daytona at night, too, is, is good. I think yeah. it, it brings a lot of attention to what racing is really like in the sports car world, in my opinion. Yeah, it, it does. It bring, they, they both bring lots of good attention to it. Well, well, well. We have wrapped up another night, but I uh, thank you, Alex. That was a great job. Oh, it was my pleasure. I'm sorry it was the last second like that, but... Yeah, I, I mean, that's just... <laughs> I'll tell you about it sometime off the air. It was a quite a day here in trying to set up something for a, another show on one of our other networks that I'm doing and I was involved after you told me this morning that I got involved in setting up a conference call for 8.15 tonight with folks in Washington D.C. So anyway we've postponed that. We're going to do it at 9.30 tonight. So we'll get all that stuff done. People in Washington never go to sleep. All right. Uh, But anyway. Thank you Alex. We will talk to you next week if not before. All All right. Thank you very much. You have a good night, Tim. You too, and stay safe. You too. All right, bye-bye. Okay, folks, we have reached the end of another Ghost Tracks Race Talk show, and I want each and every one of you to know how much ICAST Media Network, and I appreciate you being here to support our shows. All of you all around the world in this crazy, mixed-up COVID-19 world right now, when you take the time out to listen to our programming, it's very special to me, and I just really want you to know how much I appreciate it. We also want to express our deepest thanks to anyone who had, has served or is currently serving in any branch of the U.S. military. Thanks also to their families who sacrifice so much. God bless you, each and every one. Thanks also to all the law enforcement officers and first responders who so often place their lives in jeopardy for our protection and safety. And at this time, especially thank you all to all the doctors, nurses, and other health care professionals that are going through such trials and tribulations trying to get this COVID-19 under control. Remember that all of our shows are archived within minutes of their conclusion and can be accessed at any time. Please spread the word among your racing friends about what we're doing here on iCast Media. Also remember that through iCast.network you can obtain a VPN, virtually private network, that protects your 
location from people that are trying to find out certain things about you you would rather they not know and also we are a recruiter for the NRA and you all know what trials are going on now with the second amendment it's just unbelievable that this country has descended into such ignorance but we're still praying that we're going to come out of this all right Remember, you can email me at timleeming at ghostrights.racing. That's all lowercase, timleeming at ghostrights.racing. You can follow me on Twitter at timleeming83, and you can find me on Instagram as timleeming. Remember to join us in honoring the past, embracing the present, and dreaming for the future. Love you all. God bless us, everyone. The preceding was a production of ICAST Media Network.